Hey folks, my name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way, from professional big wave surfers to art directors, and in this case, a world-class spear fisherman and hunter. I first met Justin Lee last year when I was out on the Big Island filming for a mini documentary called Hunting Wild Pigs to Save Coral Reefs. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to check that out. We hit it off right away, we stayed in touch, and he invited me back out to the Big Island where I am recording this to go on my first hunt. We talk about that uh, experience in the podcast, and we get into a lot in this podcast. We talk about what it was like to dive to 170 feet at the World Championships of Spearfishing in uh, Greece. We talk about performing under pressure. We talk about um, how every arrow tells a story, both in the metaphorical sense and the literal. And I, I have a feeling you're really going to enjoy this, this one. It was fun for me, and um, Justin's just a great guy and deserves all of the success that is coming to him. So if you like this podcast, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and you can donate it. Uh, you can donate to the podcast. And by donating even just a buck a month, you enter into a raffle where I give away gear from my surf sponsors every month. So food from Patagonia Provisions, Sector 9 Skateboards, functional workout equipment from RPM Fitness, um, and all kinds of good stuff that could be sent to your doorstep. So head over to my website, kyle.surf, and without further preamble, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Justin Lee. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. On Kyle's show, we'll just talk about, you know, hacks and Salty Crew and Progenics. And <laughs> <laughs> every story you're going to tell today is going to weave into one of your sponsors at the end. Like, like every single story is just going to be an ad at the very end. I don't like the word sponsor. I like the word supporter. Mm. Everybody that supports the J. Lee story. Are you like uh, Garth from Wayne's World? You're like, you ever seen Wayne's World? <laughs> Who hasn't seen I've Wayne's World? But you haven't seen Mallrats. I was kind of blown away by that. Like, Sponsor, Nikki, Nikki, no. You're so fine. You're so Sponsor. fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Nikki. Hey, Nikki. Ugh. All these ads are giving me a headache. Super headache, dude. Here, Wayne. Take two of these. <laughs> Ooh. Small. So. Yellow. Different. Yum. <laughs> Talk about yum. Um, Cocktails of the rocks. That is very interesting, though, about Hex, your sponsor, that creates some kind of Faraday cage around your body. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty crazy because they put that carbon fiber Faraday cage. I mean, I mean they, they explain it in a way that, you know, basically a Faraday cage just saves you from electric pulses, like your microwave door. You know, and so you can stand in front of your microwave while it's heating up your food and you not get harmed. So that Faraday cage keeps it contained in there. And they've taken that technology and uh, put it into clothing for hunting. So it works for, for clothing as well as uh, wetsuits. Uh, wetsuits too. Uh, yeah. The, the funny thing is they originally started off trying to go for the surfing world, trying to make a stick like a surf safe 
thing. And they kind of started to go down that avenue and then they kind of went away from it because there wasn't it's enough satura- science. Yeah, it's a saturated market. You know, with uh, shark bands and shark shield and this and that. I heard about a guy who just got attacked and was wearing a shark band. Really? Did you hear about this? No. <laughs> it was kind of, it was one of those uh, stories I heard on the periphery, so I can't mm-hmm. fully tell it, but it, the, the headline was, man gets attacked by shark while wearing shark band. That's never good. But, you've exp- but you um, have experienced a difference in terms of how close you can get to fish. Um, fish, yeah, sharks more than anything. Um, I guess not sharks. Sharks, rays, crayfish, um, fish, you know, it's, you know, now that I wear it and I, you know, I wouldn't go back in the ocean without it because it feels like maybe I'm more conscious about it now, but when I lie down on the, whoa, there we go, man down, but when I lie down on the bottom waiting for a fish, it seems like, you know, they come in quicker. You know, they come and investigate quicker. And I know it's not scientifically proven for, you know, bony fish, you know, the fish with scales that we go after, that they use um, electrosensitivity. But, you know, but science is changing every day. You know, what science proved today, they thought was ridiculous 10 years ago. Right. Um, And do sharks pick up more electromagnetic impulses than fish do they do they do so like the the whole front of their nose has as little bit that i know but the whole front of their nose that's what they're picking up and if that's how they can pick out the weak fish or the the weak sea lion or in a completely they're sensing their dirty aura. water yeah like, they oh, feel you got a heartbeat. weak aura i'm yeah. taking you down you're mine you're you're luggish and slow i like that that's my my jaws but what have, do you have any stories about um sharks getting close to you or not getting close to you as a result of the that technology well the thing with um well sharks i think you know sharks are big enough and um you know if they're hungry they're gonna come check you out and there's you know especially like big tiger sharks that we have out here that i've run into they're they're the apex you know and they're just gonna come check you out no matter if they feel that this or that um but two instances that we had that was pretty crazy was one when i was in new zealand i had a stingray bite me which is pretty cool i was lying on the bottom you know, and stingrays use that as well. They use the, the electrical. They picked it up as far as food sources go. And I was lying on the bottom, and two stingrays started swimming towards me. And the first one swam, like, basically rubbed its belly on my head. I just was like, whoa. You know, Steve Irwin didn't want to move. And I was like, wow, that's pretty dope. And then the second one came over, and it was just at arm length. And so I put my hand up and just kind of let him swim over my hand. And when I was scratching his belly, he turned around and kind of just like, what was that? Bit my finger. Whoa. Took my glove right off my hand. I was scared, scared shitless. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like, holy did crap. It, did it uh, get you bad? No, the no. tips of my finger, because it's just a bite. They got crushers yeah. basically because they eat shellfish and stuff like that, right? But it just, the tip of my fingers, I mean, and it scared me and I just went up to the surface and I was like, holy crap. But was that it? was, it was cool because it was, you know what? It was a way that I've never experienced wildlife, you know, um, being able to pet something that's wild it was just out of this world you know and then another instance was we were spearfishing um yellowtail with a friend of mine kylie friend of mine uh spencer and this guy mike and we were filming it all in in new zealand in new zealand and kylie just shot a big kingfish or big yellowtail and um this mako shark showed up out of nowhere you know and we're sitting on the surface and she yells help and basically you know if your dive partner yells help you get going. And so we started sprinting over there. And as soon as I got up to it, It's her, the worst four-letter word. Oh, it is. It's like, help. It's like, holy shit. But we, 
I, we fly up to her and I'm, you know, I first get there and I look down and I see her fish. And I'm like, what the whole? And this like nine, nine and a half foot mako shark is down there munching on her 35, 40 pound kingfish. I mean, had, had the spear shift not been in the fish's head, the shark would have swallowed the thing whole. The only reason it couldn't get it past was because the spear shaft was sticking through and it was getting side stuck in the side of its the mouth. It was gnarly. It was like, holy Jesus, a big shark. And we were all there for what was called the hex aquatic dive. And um, so there was like, I think in all we had like Stop plugging months. your sponsors, man. Every story I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It was, but no, it's the reason is because there was going. nine of us. Okay. And eight of us were in a hex suit. Yeah. And one wasn't. And each time the shark would, you know, we were, I mean, we're all sitting up there watching this thing and each time the shark would, you know, kind of be like, hey, who's going to take my food would come up and the person that it would signal out or single out was the guy that wasn't in a hex. You know, whether it was because he could feel the heart rate, heartbeat of the, the guy that wasn't wearing it and he couldn't feel anything to us. So he knew that that was maybe potential someone that's going to steal his food. So he's going to come check him out first. But he would come straight up for the for the guy that didn't have the, I mean, we would all swim over there with our spear guns and poke the shark away. But it was crazy because he would s- single him out of the whole group and go straight to him. And what do you do when you see a shark most times? Just be mellow. Um, do you look it in the eyes and swim towards it? Do you make yourself big like a bear? Um, it kind of depends on, you know, it's all about body language. Right. You know, The body and, language of the shark. Yeah. And, you know, if he looks like he's in an aggressive posture then you kind of just get on the defensive. But if he's relaxed, then, you know, you just kind of go about your business and just kind of watch them as swim away. What is that? What does an aggressive posture look like? Um, to the layman, I mean, I've seen them, but I've never studied sharks, so I don't really know. Um, but darting around, fins down, just, you know, you can just feel it like, oh, he means business. And uh, They're moving faster. They're moving faster, moving, you know, darting around, and they just look angry or they look hungry or whatever it is. But, um, you know, there was a... It's like the guy at the bar who hasn't been laid in a really long time. <laughs> exactly. Can't st- sit still. He's darting around from room to room. Maybe that's what it is. He just need to be jacked off. Yeah. <laughs> jacked off would have been mellow. That would be my best friend. He would take away all the other sharks be like, yo, this guy... <laughs> Amazing H. Jolos. <laughs> <laughs> the shark was about to eat all of us. Luckily, Justin. I had my secret weapon. <laughs> Amazing. So good. I mean, shark experts would, they'd be like, yo, so what's your secret? This um, is a, a great segue into a news story. <laughs> twisting of the hand. It's amazing. No, but so one day I was um, spearfishing with my buddy, Mike Hong, and uh, you when you spearfish a lot, you, a lot of it is you're trying to um, distinguish between the fish that you're trying to get body language, basically. You know, if they're curious, they've got, you know, you can tell by, for me, I've learned like the peck fins. You know, if the peck fins drop, they're super curious. I mean, not super curious, but they're going to come in. The peck fins are the side fins. The side fins, yeah. They're going to come in. They're going to come check you out. Um, but, so this time I was lying on the bottom and I saw a nice uku or a gray uh, snapper. And, I saw him before I dropped. And when I got to the bottom, he looked at me, turned, and basically just swam away. And I was like, that's kind of weird. That usually doesn't happen. So I looked behind my back and there wasn't anything. And then there was a, a small table boss. And so I speared it and went to the surface and was putting it here in Hawaii. We put a lot of our fish on a belt kui. Excuse me, but on a belt kui. And so I was stringing it up on my belt kui. 
It's the and same as a stringer. Yeah, but it's but it's on my weight belt. So the dead fish are like make a hula skirt with dead fish, which right. is awesome for shark infested waters. Yeah. It's amazing how close you can get to him, though. No. <laughs> so I just strung it, and I um, <laughs> this shark came up. He was so curious. I had no idea why, <laughs> but I just had to pet him, and then jerk him off, and he was my friend. <laughs> I'm but, glad we're getting so deep so early in this show. I was expecting to ask that question later on, but I'm really happy you're opening up. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so, anyway, so I, out of the corner of my eye, I catch movement behind me, and it's this massive tiger shark i mean she was huge she was at least 12 13 feet long and i mean it looked like she was the head of a volkswagen swimming around and but you know when i looked at her the first thing that i thought she was like oh she's just curious you know and most times they are and she did a small circle and came straight at me and i just kind of sat there and stood my ground but i didn't you know you don't feel well i didn't feel the the need to turn and run you know i didn't feel like she was going to come and bite me and I thought, and so she swam, and right at the last minute, she turned and was maybe three or four feet away from me. I mean, and her eye was twitching and everything. She was so close. And she turned and just kind of swam away, and then she did another circle, and then she moved away. And I was like, whoa, that was, that was pretty gnarly. That was a big shark. But I never felt fear because she was just so relaxed, you know, and maybe that's a false sense of security. But she was so relaxed and just kind of moving along her way, and she disappeared and then i ran up to my buddy mike and i was like mike i just saw a big tiger shark he's like really i was like yeah go out to 40 or 50 feet lie on the bottom she'll come right in guarantee and sure enough he went out there lied on the bottom and when she came in on him he was lying on the bottom and she came maybe five or six feet off the bottom and swam right above him just did a small circle above him and he was like you know i was in awe because he's a photographer and he's like you know the one time i get this opportunity to take a picture of a tiger shark and it's just circling above him and he was like i need to get to the surface girl can, can you please leave and uh but then he came back he's like bro i saw her she's huge that's a big bitch but yeah so you go he went to the very bottom and then looked up at her yeah when he lied on the bottom uh he didn't see her from the surface or anything like that but he lied on the bottom and she came up and come check him out wow I mean, how'd that photo look it didn't. He didn't have his camera. Have so a camera. He took a lot of mental pictures. Yeah, a lot of blinking. <laughs> a lot of blinking. A lot of blinking. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? But he, you do yeah. that with a beautiful girl at a bar too. It's mental photos. Just it's, all day long. Just, just a lot of like nice, something in your eye. The nice blinking. thing is we got a phone nowadays. You don't really need. You know, you can always look up top 100 sexiest I'm, women. I'm nostalgic. What can I say? <laughs> you bring it back old school. Yeah. Was that hall pass <laughs> for the bank? <laughs> Uh, um, how often do you encounter sharks? Um, it kind of depends on what kind of diving I'm doing. Right. If I go to blue water, almost every time I go diving out there, I see, I run into a shark and blue water is because you're trying to, you know, chum up your, uh, your prey, which is your predatory fish, your big wahoo, mahi, mahi. So you'll lots of times shoot a smaller fish, put it on your stringer so that, and so that a larger fish will come and check exactly. it out. Exactly. Yeah. Or we'll cut it up into small chunks and just let it float to the bottom. You know, it's, it, I, I'll, I mean, with the big gray snappers and stuff, you know, they're sitting around on the bottom and all of a sudden it's raining skittles, you know, they're going to work their way up the skittle rainbow and hopefully you're at the top. Right. What, <laughs> what waters will you not have fish around yourself? Dirty water. Dirty water. Dirty water. Just cause, I mean, you can get bit by a shark in crystal clear water, 
you know if it's your time to get bit by a shark it's kind of your time to be bit by a shark but if the water is dirty i, w- I don't want to play that game yeah you know the guy who just got bit by a shark on the big island a couple days ago um that was dirty water correct yeah it wasn't actually on the big island it was in australia oh okay it was so i leave for australia in a few days oh that's why the story hit yeah. so close to home because mm. i was under the impression that it was here no so my my good friend um this guy named rick patua he's an ex-navy master chief i mean he's he's a badass mother trucker you know um but he's lucky thing he was on the boat with his friend because they were you know he called me last night and told me but he was like 10 15 feet away from him when this big it was a big bull shark he said came and grabbed him by his leg and had it not been for his medical training in the navy he would have passed away guarantee he tied a couple of tourniquets put some anti um not anti but some blood clotting agent on top of it to stop the bleeding i mean uh yeah the the emts and the ems personnel down there were like if it wasn't for this navy guy he this kid would have died where did it bite him on his uh left leg like right in his thigh and took a big chunk out of him big chunk wow big big i mean you've got so many arteries you know in that upper leg part you know and and crucial ones your femoral is right there you know you've got a lot of blood vessels that will bleed you out fairly quickly if they're ever severed how quickly would you say oh if if he was further away than 15 feet away from them and being able to because they're in the boat they're off the boat for like 45 seconds i mean he wasn't off the boat for very long at all yeah like they jumped in the water the very beginning of the dive yeah jumped in got bit had they been further away from the boat he probably wouldn't have made it had he been 50 or 60 feet away opposed to 10 15 feet away he probably wouldn't have made it wow bull sharks are bull sharks are some of the most aggressive sharks right yeah they i think it's because you know they're um they're one of the only sharks that can swim. Don't have in anyone fresh to masturbate water. them. No, exactly. <laughs> we need to find some. Uh, the, some shark, the shark whisperer. The shark whisperer. We need some Caesars. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's because um, bull sharks. They're they can. They're the only shark that can, or great whites too, I guess, but can swim up in fresh water. You know, so they enjoy or they hang out in fresh waters in bays where there's rivers and that's River usually mouths. where dirty water is. Right. And so I think they mistakenly bite other objects. And there's such a big shark that, you know, I think somebody that's seven feet tall is still considered a meal for them. Right. Yeah. River mouths are sketchy, man. <laughs> and down there, too, you got saltwater crocodiles, too. Ooh. Yes. Australia. Everything wants to kill you <laughs> in Australia. Too. From the you go on the land, spider, the spiders will all kill you, and then you go out. You got crocodiles. <laughs> you got sharks. Shane is telling me this. Uh, he goes um, archery hunting down there all the time, and on a surf trip. So he went. Shane Dorian. Yeah, he had a his surfboard and his bow, and uh, they went hunting. And uh, the guy was all like, "If you see one of these brown snakes, turn and run." And he was walking, and he said, "Right at the base of a tree." He looked down and like four feet in front of him was this big brown snake running. And he's all like, they said the the red belly or black belly of one, I don't know what it is, but he said, that's the way you can tell of the good snake or the bad snake. He's like, I did not wait around. I just turned and freaking ran. Yeah. <laughs> he's no. all like, I didn't, I didn't care if I saw deer. I, 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 ha- I flipped it over to make sure that it was the right one. <laughs> it's like the black middle, right? The black widow. I flipped it over. I didn't see the hourglass yeah. so I was safe. <laughs> but, and then he was like, 
you know and uh so then he was back at the guy's house and he was packing up to leave and i guess there was this brown spider which is like the most deadliest spider or whatever was on his surfboard bag and his his buddy from australia just nonchalantly was like mate don't mess with that one <laughs> that's it <laughs> mate don't mess with that one that'll kill you and just walked away <laughs> australia i mean they breed them different down there the stuff that they have to live like here in hawaii you know i live in paradise i got no spider that's gonna kill me i got no snake to even worry about the worst case scenario while i'm hunting out here a pack of wild dogs feral dogs so like german shepherds it would be bad that would be horrible but you could roll up on like 10 chihuahuas just coming at you well it's funny because i come from california where i (laughs) then so here's a, a uh, a little story is that so my girlfriend um, grew up in LA and she mm-hmm. did not grow up um, on the water so um, when I take her out surfing now like it's all relative right like yeah. a, a big wave for her is a small wave for me um, when I take her out to look at the beach I point out a lot of things to, yeah. to her that she doesn't see it for example oh there's a riptide right there oh the, the waves are coming in from the northwest right here mm-hmm. um and me growing up near the ocean, there's just a larger um, realm of consciousness, right? Okay. And then I come to Hawaii and I go hunting with you and I'm just making sure that I don't twist my ankle on the, <laughs> on the trail and you are noticing, hey, well, here, look at this ant population right here. Oh, the wind is uh, blowing this way, so we need to make sure that we go around and flank up on the pigs to the left. I'm like, I would have no idea. And then you go to Australia and you're like... <laughs> holy shit, everything wants to kill me, right? (laughs) It's all relative into where we go and where we grow up. And that has so much, I think that it has more, um, a bigger impact on us than we would like to even think where Mm -hmm. we grow up, our our places, right? I mean, it's just, it's normalized growing up in Hawaii that you're going to become at least decent waterman. You would hope so. Actually, I've got friends that do not go to the beach. That's kind of crazy. Do not. That's my crazy. wife doesn't know how to swim. Really? <laughs> yeah. You haven't taught her. Have you taught your girlfriend how to do anything other than, you know, anything that's? Well, I took her, I took her out surfing a couple times. She had a good time, and then the last time we went out, she got hit by a big wave early on, and she got angry at me. And we it, haven't gone it's, since. It's all your fault. It is. It yeah. is. You know, like I told her, I was like, it yeah. was. It was my fault, actually. <laughs> <laughs> go go go! You're like, it not was this a, one, Rick. No, it was a, not too steep. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Hey, no! Hey, no! Too steep! Oh, <laughs> uh, but no, there, there is something about um, your average day in a life is to go up. I've been spending the last few days with you, and your mm. average day is to go up into the mountain, um, shoot a wild pig, come down, eat some poke, and then <laughs> go to the beach and go swim with tiger sharks, which is so out of this world to most people but it's become it's normal for you it and i it's just because the way it brought up you know it's just like i mean the african tribes that walk this trail a million times and be like don't look to your right because if you see the lion to your right he's gonna come chase you you know or you know or like 
you're surfing at Mavericks. You know, it, it's so normal for you. Oh, it's or not even Mavericks. It's your cold water plunge. I would never do that. Wake up in the morning. The water's 44 degrees. I'm going to go cleanse myself and jump in the water. That's your norm. That's not my norm. My norm is stay in my warm blanket for a little while longer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just kind of hang out for a little bit longer. Like, where'd Kyle go? He went to his cold plunge. Negative Coast Rider. I'm going to stay right here. Give me some tiger sharks. Give me some mountain therapy. I'm going to stay warm. <laughs> Screw that cold water. Jump in the water with board shorts on. I'm okay with that. I want to um, dig in a little bit to your upbringing. I want to know about how all of this was normalized for you. What? And just uh, t- tell me about that. Like your first time hunting, your first your first experiences um, getting into this life that you're now so deep in. <laughs> it, you know, we lived in Colorado when I was uh, between like the ages of five and ten. My my parents went up and finished their schooling, and. Uh, but it was instilled, like, even when you were little, like, my dad was a spear fisherman, you know, and growing up, your dad's your hero, right? You want to be like him. And he was one of the top surfers, too, in the 70s, right? <laughs> yeah, one of the top 10. <laughs> he was actually a pretty good surfer. Uh, he's got, you know, pictures of him with Jerry Lopez and surfing pipe and Waimea Bay. He was a Waimea Bay lifeguard with Eddie, actually, back in the day. And, you know, he did a lot of cool things. Um, you know, and one of the coolest things that I thought was spear fishing. You know, and I had cancer when I was a baby, so I couldn't play a lot of contact sports. So I played a lot of passive sports, if that's the way. So I swam. Um, I played volleyball and baseball. But swimming really led into spearfishing. You know, and I love, I love competition sports. And um, the most competitive sports are all ball sports, you know, whether it be baseball or football or basketball. And I couldn't play too many of those sports. But great competition can be found in the woods, can be found in the ocean. You know, that big ram, the older the ram is, the smarter it is, the harder it's going to be. So that competition between you and an old ram, an old buck is there, you know, so you want to try and outsmart them, outflank them. And so you use all of the things that you've learned to slowly get better and better. And same with the ocean. You know, you start off, you know, shooting smaller fish like uh, we got a yellow eye coli out here. Delicious but fairly easy to shoot. So you start off with working that and you start off learning fish behavior that way. And you slowly work your way up until you get a spear gun in your hand and you're, you're trying to go after the smarter fish in Hawaii, like the moo or the uku. And um, that competition with you versus dinner, you know, eventually gets you so amped up, you know, and I'm in the middle of three brothers. So competition was bred into us. Like it's who we are. Um, when did you get to play uh, all the sports that you got so good at? So I'll, I'll stroke your ego for a second. <laughs> um, you grew up uh, playing baseball, basketball, and what was the third one? Volleyball. And volleyball. And you were voted MVP for all three teams. You then, in your senior year of high school, took up swimming and then got I, a, I swam my, you, my junior you, year you, as well. You swam. <laughs> then you then got a D1 scholarship to... Um, Seattle, correct? This is University of Washington. University yeah. of Washington. I mean, you forgot that I was all American in the 1500 yard freestyle. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you're really bad at? Um, crocheting. Crocheting. <laughs> I've never tried crocheting booties. Singing 80s music. You know what I really am not very good at? And my buddies beat me all the time at is um, exploding kittens 
it's a card game. And for some reason, I was like, "You monster! <laughs> what are you talking about?" That's what we do out here in Ho- in Honoka. Yeah. You know, we we don't have any street lights or anything. There are a lot of people who listen to this who aren't from Hawaii, so <laughs> you're kind of representing the island right Just now. <laughs> what my brothers and I used to call Honoka Entertainment because we grew up in Colorado, basically. You know, from five to ten is your your younger exploration. You know, there was bike trails and there was all of this, and you know parks and ponds and everything like that to go play with you know here in Honoka it was it's pretty slow you know we we lived pretty far away from town at the time and we called Honoka entertainment we would catch cat grasshoppers and little crickets and throw them in spider webs and just be like whoa look at how fast that spider's so fast you know and eventually you want to see how big of a bug this little spider will eat you know, just throwing like huge grasshoppers and it just destroys their web. And you're like, oh, shucks. And then like 10 minutes later, the web is back together and full. And you're like, oh, that was mean. <laughs> High five so each you, other. So you were hunting in Colorado. Um, I, That's where it kind of started. Um, we, you know, because in Colorado, there's there's a lot of, oh, you're, you're hunting big game. You know, your elk and your deer, bear and this and that. So you're not allowed to hunt with uh, a bow weaker than 45 pounds you know and we were seven years old we didn't have a bow nearly that strong my dad would let us walk around but with our bow in our hand but there was no hunting but what i really liked about it was you know my dad because that this hunting was his norm you know and being outside whether it be surfing or spearfishing or hunting was his norm and because he had done it for so long you know and being like a little sponge you know at his ankles and just wanting to be like my dad you know, he would point out little things to me all the time. You know, the same things that, you know, you're like, oh, the river events. It's the same thing. Be like, we'd stop and be like, you see that slug right there? Like, how are you so in tune with everything around you, being able to see a deer, you know, a couple hundred yards away, listening for a buck or a bull elk scream, it's bugled a mile away, and yet still have the eyesight or the feeling to see a slug. You know, it's, it's, it's so overwhelming for someone that's new to the, to the woods, you know, walking around the birds chirping and this and that, because you're so focused on trying to walk quietly or trying to not get lost, you know? Um, but with my dad, you know, it's just so comfortable for him that he would walk around and he'd be like, yeah, see that slug or you see this track right here. You see how this track is different than that track? Cause this one is running. So that means he was closer and he heard us coming already. He'd be like, you know, at like nine years old, you're like, what? My dad's a magician. No, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I, well, being out here with you, I don't think that you're aware even of the amount that you have taught me over the past few days. Even the, the sense of that I'll be walking behind you and we'll be um, stalking a, um, a ram or a pig and you'll say, walk with your feet flat so you don't get the toe and get the of lava rock up yeah. against that oh yeah good idea <laughs> i never would have thought of that well it's because it's all of these little these little things that that um it's just fascinating to me man but it's it's that's it's, the go. difference is i mean because this is what i do i i love it it's not what i do but it's it's i love it and this is who i am you know but paddling into big mavericks <laughs> you know you're like okay this wave and i'd be out there like well, how is this wave different than the last wave? You know, or you'd be like, hey, go down, paddle to the right, 20 feet, sit there. Be like, 
how do you know this? It's because you're so in tune with it. You know, it's like you said, it's like growing up and what's your norm? You know, your norm is so alien to me. You know, but it, that's the cool thing about meeting new people and meeting people that have a, a like interest, whether it be hunting or surfing or anything. You know, because just because you have one interest doesn't mean that the other interests are going to be the same. Like with surfing, you know, I surf some. I wouldn't call myself a surfer. I can stand up. I can go down the face. You know, but, you know, hanging out with you and with some other friends that are amazing surfers. You know, watching you guys do your craft is amazing. I mean, it. like I think I was telling you the other day, you know, like, I, I dig watching. I think it's just human is dig watching people excel at what they do whether it be soccer or football or basketball, someone that excels, it just really, I mean, or what is that? What I saw the other day, the, the kid stacking the cups. I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook. <laughs> it's this like kid that has like four different cup stacking things that he has to do. And he does it in like five seconds. Oh, oh it was kids. amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, and that is like, holy shnikes. Like that's that's action you know when we were probably 10 years older like that weirdo kid i'm sure he does that all day you know and now that you know i'm a little older and i just appreciate that much more someone that is good at their craft it's have you crazy. ever seen the documentary jiro dreams of sushi <laughs> who ha- i love that <laughs> netflix awesome it's such a good documentary it's it captures exactly what you're talking about mm-hmm. the the element of mastering a craft yeah. so well and it does it with such an obscure subject sushi right? yeah mastering sushi making and this guy has dedicated his life to sushi making and it's such a good story mm-hmm. i i have that appreciation as well we, this morning when we were going hunting yeah. we were um listening to the tim ferris show with Josh Waitskin. Yeah. I highly recommend the episode. If you're not enjoying this, head over there. <laughs> but he is, um, he's a master at the art of learning, mm-hmm. right? And it, and it really doesn't matter what it is that is your thing, but if you're committed to getting really good at your thing, there is, um, there's respect that, that needs to come oh, from yeah. that. So, here's a, here's a question for you. What, um, what principles of learning have you applied from one sport to the next? Because you've gotten good at a lot of them. Um, I think the biggest thing is when you're first getting into it is sitting back and watching someone, you know, and my, my uncle John told me, he's all like, everybody has a quiver, you know, everybody has a quiver of arrows and it's the people that you meet that you like their arrow you know, they're going to have good arrows and they're going to have bad arrows, you know, and the people that you like, you grab those arrows and you put them in your quiver, you know, so that when you, you're at the area where they'd be like, you can pull up that quiver and be like, I saw them do this, or I saw the way that they reacted to this, or, you know, whether it's personality wise or skills wise, you've got a quiver at the end of, you know, your life full of all of these things that from people that you've met and you can use them from here and there. And when you're going into a new sport, that's the biggest thing is just to sit there and listen you know um in the fire department that's what they taught us is you know you're gonna have four or five different captains you know have the same goal but tell you something different and how to get there what you don't want to do is the yeah but you know be like you know just because greg long said go paddle over here and then the next person said you should go battle over there. You shouldn't be like, yeah, but Greg Long said I should go over there. 
you know, just soak it all in and go there, you know, until someone comes and asks you for your advice and then you can give them your two cents. But in the um, beforehand, just soak it all in. And that's the biggest thing. And there's a lot of things that I think, you know, as far as archery hunting and spearfishing goes, there's so much that flops back and forth, you know, and a lot of it is sitting back and reading animals, whether it's a fish or a lobster or a sheep or a pig, you can tell a lot about their body language. You know, you can, you know, it's like people, right? They can, they can lie to your face, be like, yeah, I love this movie. But if their body language is just out of it, they can't lie with their body. Right. Yeah. Uh, this morning you told me something that I'm convinced will be, um, etched into my mind forever (laughs) because I, shot my first ram this morning congratulations thank man. you thank you thank you 20 yards quartering away ran 20 yards and died i shot the arrow and then um immediately started to run after it <laughs> and you grabbed my shoulder and said no 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 because if you run after the ram it's going to get a ton of adrenaline and it's going to mm-hmm. run a lot f- further um rather than if we sit back it doesn't even know that we're still here yeah. but we waited for about 10 minutes and um, it was over on the other side of a uh, ridge and it started wobbling around and the the rest of the sheep started sneezing. Yeah. Which I had no idea that sneezing means a warning. They were saying, Fred, what are you doing? You're wobbling around, <laughs> right? And we waited for 10 minutes and then it dropped and we went and we walked over to the arrow that I shot mm-hmm. and you told me that an arrow tells a story. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, it does, you know, your arrow, especially if it goes all the way through, if it goes through your animal, and the animals we're shooting out here in Hawaii aren't that big, you know, like that ram you shot today was probably 70, 80 pounds. Um, so a lot of times your arrows go all the way through and that arrow tells you a story. It tells the path that it went through. And just like anybody else, I mean, this is going to get super deep, but like anybody else, you know, at the end of this, the end of their life, they'll tell you a story and you can tell them like, you know, What's your story, Justin? Oh, you know, I was born in Hilo. I moved to Colorado. I moved back to Honoka. I went to Seattle. But you can follow that path and be like, okay, there's a little bit of Hilo. That, a little bit of this, this arrow smells like Hilo. And then a little bit of this arrow smells like Colorado. And then a little bit of this arrow smells like Honoka. And that's what you look for in the arrow. You know, you can see the animal went out of sight. You know, the last time we saw him, he was wobbling. But we didn't know for a fact that he fell over, that he had expired. And so we went to your arrow and we smelt your arrow and your arrow can tell you what part of the, the anatomy of the sheep they went through, whether it smells like we call it in Hawaii in the bindongo, which is it's doo-doo. If it smells like doo-doo, then you know, you hit it a little farther back. Um, but in your case, he was quartering away. So it smelt, it had a hint of the bindongo, but it also had deep red blood and deep red, bright blood is found in your lungs and in your heart. Um, so we knew, you know, there was some luck. Wait, hold on one second. Talk about sheep. I got to put some water in the pot. We're boiling a sheep to make some curry stew this evening. Hold on. Sorry about that. And we're back. We're back. We had to refresh in our drinks and uh, make sure that the sheep that uh, Kyle over here shot does not burn as we're making curry with it this evening. <laughs> but yeah, so to get back to the arrow story, the arrow... You know, tells its story, tells its path that it's been on. And by the way it smells and the way it looks, it'll tell you. You know, and when we picked up the arrow, it did have a little bit of smell from that it went through a little further back than we would hope for. 
but it also had a lot of bright red blood on it and that's that's a done deal because the ram was angled at um a diagonal so mm-hmm. we so we shot it at a diagonal it was, so it went through the back and then up through the front it was quartering away yeah and which is where you want to do so like you know when you're hunting you want to aim for the opposite shoulder and if you hit the opposite shoulder from wherever you hit that path is is going to do some damage and it, you know because as a as a hunter i mean you are basically taking a life you know and that's that's so deep in a way and kind of gnarly if you think about it is we're going out there to take a life and um you know as an outdoorsman as a sportsman as a hunter as a provider for our family for this this protein that we're going to get it's our job to try and execute the best possible shot to hey <laughs> we got someone in the background but we're <laughs> moving through it keep going yeah um you know so you want to execute the perfect shot so that the animal doesn't suffer. You know, that ram that you shot today, from the time the arrow went through him to the time he died was maybe 15 seconds. You know, he ran down in front, he ran down what, 20 yards, kind of stopped, looked around, and then fell over. You know, and a good idea of what how he was feeling is the other sheep around. The other sheep had no idea what had gone on. They were still standing there looking at him. You know, they had no idea where the arrow came from. And that's that's what I really, really, really like about archery hunting is it's quiet. It's not very um, intrusive. It's, you're, you know, you're kind of the sideline. But, you know, so a lot of times when you shoot an animal, they don't even know what's going on. You know, um, like today, like you're saying, the other rest of the herd were sneezing their, you know, their, their alarm sound. But it was like a, so there's like different varies. The more you hunt, the more you hunt for sheep, the more you can tell like what their their sneeze on a scale from one to ten is how scared they are. And the what the sneeze that they did today was like a two. It was basically tss, something's weird. <laughs> yeah, tss, tss, tss. like there's a there's this hunting show, um, this hunting DVD that goes around the island. It's called hunting molokai style and they talk about the different deer barks and so shane and i all the time shane and i love this freaking video everybody that watches it loves it so if you can hunting molokai style but shane and i will be talking again it'll be like hey get something over there you know or hey i see him over there hey we gotta run we gotta run you know and uh, uh so like with the sheet they put it, the dialogue in oh and uh to all my my home G's on Molokai, my mom is from Molokai, so like half of that island, my cousins and my cousin's husband, and so half of that island basically is family, but they speak Turk Pigeon, which is like our Hawaiian Creole English out here. But so the sheep, you know, they're they were they knew something wasn't right, and the reason they knew something wasn't right was because Fred wasn't coming with them. You know, and like you're saying, like the sneeze is like, hey, Fred, you're going to come with us? Something just happened and we don't know what's going on. Come with us. And I mean, to even to the fact that they didn't know we were there, that when we walked up on said Fred, <laughs> the other sheep were standing right there. I mean, and then you as an ethnical hunter, I was like, hey, you want to shoot another? And like, no, we we got enough like, sheep, man. Yeah, we were walking up. And like, you want to get another one? They're right there. I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> I got my ram. I'm stoked. It's, we're going to eat some stew tonight. I'll take some more to, to Oahu. I'll make some stew over there. But 
you're nonchalantly saying, hey, you want to go new- shoot another one? My hands are shaking coming up on Fred. <laughs> it's, but that's the coolest thing is, you know, like, um, like I don't hunt too often for myself anymore. Like every now and then I'll go hunt with uh, Wayne or with Shane or with some good friends of mine. And the, the goal then is for me to go get something. But I've been doing a lot of hunts where I take a lot of friends that are just getting into archery hunting. And, um, you know, and I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love, you know, I've taken so many friends to get their first sheep, you know, or their first pig or um, their first just anything. And it's awesome. The excitement that they feel, it's like, you know, me standing back going, oh, I remember that. I know what they're going through and I love that feeling. You know, and... um, but it's crazy to see like how excited, you know, because you've been doing it. I mean, I'd say I've been doing it for so long, but I'm at 33 now. I think my first time I archery hunted was like 10 or 11. Like had a bow in my hand with the goal to go shoot a sheep or a pig or anything. You know, that's 20 some odd. It's two decades ago. You know, and to think that, you know, it's been so long. and But then to see the joy on friends' faces that, you know, like, oh, my gosh. Like, like you said, shaking, shaking. My buddy Alex Gray, when he first shot his first ram, like I told him, you know, he was like you, you know, the first, when he first saw his first sheep, you got excited and you, you missed a couple of shots. And it was like him, like we just couldn't close the deal for the one reason or another. And I just told him, I was like, just relax, it's going to happen. And the ram that he shot, he actually, it kind of dodged his arrow a little bit and he hit it right in the back of the head and the thing just dropped just stone dead dropped and i mean he claimed it like he claimed the 40 foot barrel at jaws or at mavericks just arms in the air just like ah! but it's you know for me like you know you see that claim and you see that claim like when he gets out of a big barrel or something you know like how can this relate to to that and it does it really does you know because for me i've done it a few times I've been lucky enough to shoot some animals that that stoke is still there you know and but it's not the same as it was when I first shot my first sheep or my first shot my first deer you know and to see that claim the same claim as it is when they're pulling out of a big barrel it's it's awesome how do you keep such a voracious appetite for uh, learning that's one thing I've been very impressed uh, with you in terms of that we've hang, we've been hanging out for the last few days every morning you say hey you want to go hunt <laughs> I, and you actually do have that little kid like, hey you want to go hunt and then on the way there you throw on either a TED Talk podcast <laughs> or something new like you, you have this mind where you're constantly need to be learning something new and it's um, there's a kind of energy in it that is very unique mm-hmm. and you don't drink coffee <laughs> I'm wired enough, man. You, and I've got all my teeth are sweet teeth, so I need to have like coffee taste like sugar. But I mean, we had a cup of Joe today, and I'm still wired from it. And that was like four hours ago. And you know, we came back home. I grabbed the sheet meat. I'm cleaning the sheet meat, dicing the potatoes and the carrots. And I'm corrupting you. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. They got this twitch, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Do you hear something? Do you smell something? <laughs> it's it's around here. It's around here. But no, for for me, it's. You know, but that, you know, that jitteriness that you get from coffee or just from anything, caffeine, it goes away from what I really want to accomplish in the ocean or in the mountain. 
you know you go to the the water for when you're hunting is to be mellow and quiet and just kind of absorb everything that's happening around you and if you've got caffeine your heart beats a little faster so you're you're not going to be able to spend as much time on the bottom and then you know when you're hunting you know when the, when it's time to come down and you've got to pull back your bow and you've got to steady yourself if you've got caffeine steadying your pin you know to to pull the shot off is going to be a lot more difficult um i mean it'd be crazy to see i mean not crazy but it'd be fun to get like super caffeinated and then walk through the woods and just heart see. rate monitor yeah but just see what your ears and your eyes would pick up when it's just caffeinated out. so i i, I want to get back to to you on this but i will mm. say a, qu- a quick little um tidbit about that i've had only maybe three or four times in my life where i couldn't control my physiology one was when I was, um, I think I was 20, and I was giving a speech in front of maybe 700 people. <laughs> and I got up to the podium, and my right leg started shaking. And I was giving my speech, and I looked down at my leg, and I couldn't stop my leg from shaking. <laughs> and it hasn't happened again since this morning. Really? When I took my first shot, on oh, that, yeah. and my right leg was shaking. <laughs> And I missed that first shot because yeah. I was shaking. And then the whole way after I missed, we, we were um, chasing after the, we were stalking the sheep for um, maybe 45 minutes before I yeah. was able to take that next shot. And I had to picture in my mind, steady and slow yeah. and do not rush yourself. But it was, um, it was a weird experience because I actually went back to that moment of giving a speech in front of all of those people. That's awesome. It was crazy. You know, and that's, that's the really, really cool thing is because even the seasoned hunter gets excited, you know, when they draw back on an animal that they've dreamed about, you know, and like Shane, if you look at his bow now, he's got L-O-C-K in big block letters right next to his pin. And that just reminds him to take a breath, lock down. And he says by spelling L-O-C-K, it really focuses him on settling his pin and shooting. And, you know, it, it goes the same way when he's getting pounded. You know, when, he's, when he eats it on a big 40-foot, 50-foot wave, he says you got to find that same piece. You know, and for him, he says that he pictures packing up to go on a hunting trip, you know, making sure his checklist is checked. You know, What do you... Um what do you do when you get nervous? Because you live this life where you will go uh, hunt a wild pig that could gouge your guts out <laughs> if it gets angry enough. You'll then, um, not anymore, but you were working um, for the fire department for a number of years where you would rock up on some of the most traumatic scenes anyone could imagine. Mm-hmm. And then you'll go swim with with tiger sharks. How do you manage that um, that discomfort? Um, but it, it's all different, you know. Maybe you approach it the same, but it's all different, you know. Like in the fire department, when you pulled up on a, a shady scene, you know, and you know people, are, you know, and that's the thing about the Big Island is, you know, because it's a Big Island, it's still small circles, and everybody knows everybody. So pulling up on a scene, all of a sudden it's like, hey, Justin, that's so-and-so over there. And be like, oh, my God. But you can't play that game. You can't play. You can't see faces, really. You know, you just got to see a patient, and you've got to do your job. And your job is to save their life. 
you know, or try and save their life or make their comfort level back to a place where they're not freaking out or X, Y, or Z. Um, when it comes to being able to focus in on when you're hunting, like for me, like I can look back at one of the hunts that made me have to focus in and it was, I was elk hunting um, and I had this huge bull elk come in and I let my nerves get the best of me and I missed a dream shot at a bull of three lifetimes. I mean, it was this huge, huge Rocky Mountain elk bull. I mean, I still have visions of it now. And I drew back and when I drew back and anchored to get my pin settled, I forgot what was going on. I didn't come back to reality until I pulled the trigger on my release and I shot high. And to shoot high on an elk at 37 yards away means I shot five feet high. <laughs> you know, how do you miss a target by five feet? Like when you're practicing, you know, if you're off by four or five inches to the left or to the right or high, you're like, oh, that was a bad shot. No, I shot 60 inches high, which is like, are you freaking kidding me? It's like all the football players who get into the Super Bowl tend to throw their passes <laughs> 10 feet further than they're actually <laughs> supposed to go on the first couple plays. And, you know, and that's what it is. It's your nerves and everything like that. But, you know, since that day, since you've rocked yourself, you have to be able to control your nerves. And thank God, it, you know, now that when I go hunting and stuff like that, it feels like I have kind of, I feed off of that more than anything. Now it's... I want that feeling. And when that feeling comes, when, you know, I've shot and come really nice access to your bucks. And when that feeling comes where this big deer is finally giving you the shot, it's like, oh, and then right at the last minute, and it goes quiet. And, you know, for me, I got a checklist. My checklist is, is the string touching my nose? Is my fingertip touching my, um, my riser where, so I don't grip your bow. You know, because there's a lot of things you don't want to grip your bow. You want to make sure your arm is where it needs to be. And everything is where how it was when you're practicing. Because just like everything else, it's all about consistency, right? If you consistently put it in the same place and everything is consistently the exact same, you can have the consistent result that you're used to. And so for me, it was just the, the checklist. And now that when I get that feeling of like, oh, it's going to happen, it's boom, checklist time. And make sure my checks are, you know, there before I pull the trigger. But um, so as far as nerves go, like how I settle the nerves, it's I don't know. It's it's different because it's it's, it's different from the three aspects. But when you're spear fishing, you have to be because if you're not, you're not going to make it to the surface. You know, if you're down, you know, I was in Greece earlier this year for the World Championships of spear fishing, and we were spearing fish at 180 feet. You know, if you get too excited down there, you're never going to make it back to the surface. You know, you've got to be able to hush that down. And I think that, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what goes over me. I don't know what I think about. It's just mellow out. Bring me into um, that competition because there's obviously nerves going into it. You want to do well, but you need to slow your heart rate down. Bring me into those first few minutes before you will take a drop. So, yeah, like you said, you want to do well. You know, you've got a lot of people that are, you know, backing you. But the the good thing about it was America is not well known for their spear fishermen, you know, um, as far as on the competition level. We've got great American spear fishermen that go in around the world and break world records. But when it comes to competition, it's the Europeans that own the show. It's a lot bigger in Europe. It's huge. It's huge. Like, 
I mean, they're, you were telling me there's a, there's in terms of money, in yeah, terms of they get paid. That. They're like star athletes. It's national sports. I mean, crazy. It's it's almost the Olympic level, you know, because CMOS is a, a sport that's recognized by the Olymp- International Olympic Committee. What's and CMOS? CMOS. I don't know what it yeah. is. It's the governing body that puts on the Spearfishing World Championships, and they do underwater hockey and some other things and free diving but anyway so this sport is in a lot of ways uh an olympic sport and um so when we met like these other guys they're olympic athletes they come with their entourage of like 12 14 people from doctors to scouting to personal trainers to masseuses and they're getting massages between the days of scouting they're getting massages because it's a two-day tournament so you're, you're shoulder to shoulder with the world's best and these world's best are treated like the world's best where in America we're scratching to get fundraising so that we don't have to pay 10 grand out of our pocket to get up there and try and just show face. So that was, you know, in a way it was cut that there was no pressure. You know, there was the only pressure that there was was that we put on ourselves, you know, because, you know, I hate losing, you know, or not so much losing. I hate not showing up. You know, I hate going there and not, not at least saving face. You know, going there and because, I mean, if, if I had gone there and I got like dead last, no one would even know, you know, like, oh, the American got dead last. And that's what it's about, whatever. So there was really no pressure. So, but there was pressure on myself. And I mean, we've talked about it. The pressure you put on yourself is bigger than any pressure, outside pressure. And, um, but so sitting on there just going, okay, this is going to be the deepest dive you've ever done prior to Prior to the day of the competition, it's maybe not the safest thing to do, but prior to the day of competition, my deepest dive was 142 feet. My first dive of competition was to 178 feet. You know, it was, so I gained 35 feet, you know, in my first drop of the day. You know, so it was, it was a trip to come up and look at my watch and be like, but then it's like a, you know, I don't, it's. How, uh, how much time are you down for? Um, it's not that long actually. So between like two minutes and fifteen to like three fifteen, three thirty. Oh, not um, that long at all. <laughs> no, because you've got these guys that are doing. Yeah, I, I encourage anyone listening to try and hold your breath for three minutes and fifteen seconds right now. But there's a lot of people that will. Unless you're driving on the freeway. <laughs> Unless it's the LA freeway, you're not moving anyway, so you're good to <laughs> but, go. <laughs> but if you're just trimming weed up in Humboldt right now, <laughs> listening to this podcast, go for it. <laughs> but <laughs> give it your all. <laughs> But, you know, the biggest thing is static breath holders. I mean, there's guys that hold their breath for 10, 9, 11 minutes, you know, but static. But the biggest thing is to be able to move. You know, when you're hunting, you're moving. You're not lying still at the top of a pool that you're holding your breath to. You're almost ready to pass out. And all you got to do is lift your head up three inches to take a breath. You know, for us, it's you're at the bottom. You're moving. You're fighting a fish to get him back to the surface. And um, but that was the biggest thing is like now I'm on the bottom. I feel good, you know, because I've trained myself to feel good at a hundred feet. When do I go up? Because it's 180 feet above me now. When do I go up to get back to the surface? Like, when do I leave? Because you, know, when you're at 70 or 80 feet, you leave when your body's like, oh, I got to breathe. You know, if you're at 180 feet and your body's telling you, you got to breathe. You're screwed. You've got a long way to get back up to the surface before you can breathe. How much time does it take to get down, to get up if you're at 180 feet? Um, it would take just over a minute. You know, so, and it's a minute of moving. 
You know, the good thing is that's where playing the game of how much weight you have on and um, being safe so that if something was to happen, you would still float to the surface. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're comfortable and then you're like, okay, I got to leave. And so, there was a, go for it. Uh, there was a couple of times where I was like kicking up and I try not to look at the surface because I don't want to freak myself out because at 180 feet, you can't see the surface. You know, it's just blue, you know, and so you're coming up, you know, and you don't want to look at the surface and be like, that's far away. And it's crystal clear blue water. It's crystal clear. In Greece. Yeah. I mean, you could see the, you could see the makeshifts of the bottom, basically you could tell the, the grass patches from the, at like a hundred feet. So, so had, would you go all the way down to the bottom to try and get these fish? Yeah, you had to. You had to. You go to the bottom and you crawl along the bottom, not just go to the bottom, sit there. And then go back to the top. You go to the bottom and you crawl along the bottom. And, and it's seagrass at the bottom? There's the seagrass. Yeah, there was this uh, Poseidon's garden or Athena grass or something like that. Um, something super cool. You know, Poseidon's grass. Super Greek. <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah, those grass patches, are the, what you were looking for was pockets of rock. If there was rock, there was fish. And especially if it was in the deep, there was fish. But, yes, yeah, so you would go to the bottom and you'd crawl along the bottom and uh, try and get closer to the fish. Uh, and bring me back into those couple minutes uh-huh. as you're breathing up. What were you telling yourself? Breathing up, and you're basically just telling yourself. You bring bring me into that conversation in your head. In my head, it's. I know there's a conversation because you everything in your body wants to speed your heart rate up because mm-hmm. you're at the world championships. You have something to prove. <laughs> competitive as fucks. I know you. <laughs> you know, and you need to slow your heart rate down and drop almost 200 feet to try and shoot a big fish and that's what you know so you're sitting there and i'm just picturing myself just close my eyes and you know you you slow your heart rate down by when you're exhaling so you're going your heart rate starts to brady down starts to slow down so for me it was i would do a series of breaths three seconds in hold my breath for a half a second and then breathe out for 10, 11 seconds. And then that focuses you do, in do on... Do one of those. Just... You know, and you just focus on your breathing. And, you know, and you try and cancel out everything because you're just looking down and you're just looking at blue you know and so you're just concentrating to be like don't worry about anybody else it's just you dad's sitting on the the boat he's watching you it's just you As you a, think about your dad but that was the coolest the single most coolest thing about the world for me was having my dad as my boatman so, like, you're allowed somebody on your boat to be your caddy, basically. You know, like, at a surf competition, you got your caddy that's got a couple of boards for you just in case you break a board. He can throw you a board or if the waves get bigger or whatnot. And having, you know, the guy that introduced me to the world of spearfishing, introduced me to what is a huge part of who I am, there, watching me, was at on the biggest stage. I can only imagine that that's what it was like for Tom Brady to have his dad watching him play in the Super Bowl. You know, like, in just feeling that, like, oh, look what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I get to see my hero watching me compete. And 
you know you want to do as best as you can and but you know for you for i mean for my dad told me he's like you know whatever happens just come home you know proud of you already just come home be safe and come home but you know in your head it's just like i got this legend of my father sitting on the boat watching me you know and it's it was so cool to come up and after i speared a fish and come up because he was on the boat with our greek judge you know and the greek judge thank god he spoke english you know and the greek judge was a spear fisherman from uh, greece as well you know and he was telling my dad like how challenging the fish are and this and that and you know as a proud dad or whatever he's like telling to the guys like because the guy had no idea he couldn't me from freaking dimitri he had no idea who i was you know and this guy's telling him how difficult these fish are to shoot you know and you know because my dad's like oh yeah my son you know he's great guy he spears fish blah 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 and uh you know and the greek guys are like oh you know don't be surprised if he doesn't shoot anything today you know because the fish out here are so difficult and um one of the fish i pulled up was this pika grouper that was like the biggest pika grouper that's been taken off a cedar silent by a diver in who knows how long and um you know but when i came up to the surface you know and i saw my dad and he gave me the shaka with a big smile and i saw the greek guy just in like jaw drop like oh my god get that fish here come bring it bring it bring it bring it bring it and i swam it over to me and you know because there's so much time between depths dives because you're going so deep you know the rule of thumb is however deep you go in meters divide that by five and that's how many minutes you have to stay at the surface so if you go 50 meters you got to stay at least 10 minutes on the surface to off gas you gotta do math too it's, <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> I know it's a good thing it was increments of five. Yeah. I was have been screwed. If it was like right. three and a half, it'd be yeah. like, damn it, I'm gonna die. Three point seven. <laughs> but you know, so there was so much time in between, so I could talk to my dad, and having my dad there to talk to me and mellow me out was was huge. And you know, with that first day of diving, just spearing fish was. I mean, I speared five fish in six hours. On any other day, if it was a competition or whatever, that'd be like, oh, that's not very good. But it was the second most amount of fish shot but uh, some other guys got some bigger fish so i was sitting in fifth place after first day but it was it was mental you know the greek guy was like oh my god this american what was it like shooting that big one oh and what kind of fish are these that you're going for groupers so like there was uh there's different groups and stuff like that but you're targeting your groupers um there's a yellow block grouper a white grouper and then this pika grouper or a modeled grouper and um you know they said it would be hard to get a minimum two kilo grouper, a uh, pico grouper. And I shot this when it was five, you know, and it was, but when I was lying on the bottom and I saw it, I was like, oh my God. And it was kind of far away. And so I kind of had to stock it, go behind a big rock and come around and finally got a shot at him. But I shot him and he immediately ran into his hole. You know, and I'm at, I shot him at 178 feet, I think it was. And he ran into his hole. You know, and like I'm thinking in my head, like if I go up to the surface now, it's going to be 12, 13 minutes before I can get back down to get him out of this hole. You know, and so I was like, so I'm going to try and get him out now so that I don't have to wait time. And if I lose him, you know, and that's where my mom telling me safety, safety, safety. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> she's, just, she's just on your shoulder. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so I, I pulled him out of the cave that he was in and I had to swim off the bottom and so you know having this you know 10 11 pound fish fighting you to get back to his safety and you fighting him to get to your safety which is the surface it was kind of a challenge at first you know and 
so he got him off like 30 feet off the bottom and then i let some of the line out of my reel so i could get to the surface but yeah it was that was one of the biggest accomplishments of my life wait, wait keep keep me in this story for a second I'm, I'm right there with you. So you let some of the line out. Yeah. So I have a big reel okay. attached to my spear gun and uh, the reel allows me to get to the surface and it's got about 60 meters of line on it. And so, but if I was to go to this, if I let it out immediately, it can go back into his cave. And so you've got to drag him off the bottom just a little bit. And then as you're swimming out, kind of just thumb it. So that you're playing the drag a little bit. And, but you know, eventually when you get to the surface, almost all of your line is out of the reel because the current is pulling and this and that. And so the whole time is you're like, just stay on the shaft, stay on, don't come off, don't come off, don't come off, don't come off. And then when I was coming up, pulling it back up to the surface. So for people who don't uh, spear fish, you shoot it, it goes through the fish, and then there are little wings on yeah. on it that yeah. make it so that your spear doesn't um, The fish come can't out. slide off. Yeah, yeah the so there's barbs. And so when I got to the surface, you know, that's the thing is keep it on. But then halfway up, because we're shooting these fish so deep, their air bladders expand and they float to the surface. And then you know, it came to the surface. So it's like, oh. So those fish <clears throat> don't go up to the surface because the, the, the air I, I, know, I know a bit about um, this, but. They, they can, they have to go slowly. So okay. if you pull a fish too quickly, that's why sometimes like you pull these deep snappers and stuff where you see these pictures and there's this red balloon in their mouth. And that's just their stomach coming up because the air bladder is pushing so much air that the stomach pops out of their mouth whoa and you shoot fish sometimes like i've shot fish out here fairly deep and the eyes pop out because <laughs> of the pressure what kind of fish uh we have these fish called minpachi and um one day i found this cave and it was like 110 115 feet or so and it was filled with minpachi and being a, a dumas I was like i'm gonna grab my little pole spear and i'm gonna go spear one and be like i shot him in at 100 something feet just dumb you know and when i pulled him out and i brought him out they have these huge eyes and they completely came off of the fish's head like they were like i don't know if you've seen that lady that can pop her eyes out of her socket just yeah i've seen her on, I've seen her on instagram <laughs> yeah, exactly. i actually have so it was like that you don't forget something like that <laughs> it's engraved it's yeah. etched in forever oh, it's deep yeah it's 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 right behind the sheep story right, right there actually <laughs> it's next on the rolodex in my long-term memory <laughs> Um, oh, this is completely random. But to get back, like, why I like learning so much. Yeah. Because, you know, this I hate to always play this card. But, you know, I do have a scar that runs across my stomach. I had stage four neuroblastoma when I was a baby. You know, and there's there's this account on Instagram right now. If you guys get a chance, it's um, Trucker Challenge. It's hashtag Trucker Challenge. And it's about this three-year-old kid that has neuroblastoma the same neuroblastoma stage four cancer that i had and he's been battling it for two years now but um you know i have this scar across my stomach and then you read about these stories how cancer is gnarly and when i meet people that have had cancer you know be like oh, we're talking stories they're like oh so how old are you and when a, when when one cancer person survivor asks another cancer survivor asks them how old they are it's not asking you how old you are but it's how old you are after you got cancer and What's gnarly for me is my age in years is the same age in years as cancer. I'm only four months different, you know, so, but, you know, when I talk to people that have had cancer, I mean, cancer is such a gnarly drug, not gnarly drug, but gnarly disease, you know, and it's claimed so many people, you know, for why for me to have this quote unquote 
gnarly stage four cancer and be able to survive, there's got to be a reason. And my reason isn't to sit on the couch and watch TV all day, which I do enjoy every now and then, but I really, really enjoy getting out and learning as much as I can, whether it's from the ocean. Kyle, 4 a.m., you want to go? Let's go. <laughs> exactly. Let's go. Tomorrow morning. Yeah, let's go. All right. <laughs> let's go play. You know, it's like, do you want to go shoot something? Yeah. Uh, we're going. 4 o'clock. Get up. The alarm's going to go off. Let's get going. You know, but it, it's that, it, that joy of learning and now being in a position to, you know, um, teach or help walk through someone, you know, that's, the cool thing is you meet all these great people that want to try new things and I've gotten to take some, like for you, and for me, it was super awesome seeing your excitement level, your shakiness, and like, oh my God. And then your willingness to get in there afterwards and, no, I want to debone this animal. I want to take part in every aspect of the hunting. And like I was telling you while we were hunting, it's like when I first got into, like my first animal that we shot and stuff like that, I used to spend, you know, a lot of time going through the guts, going through the organs and checking out the lungs and the heart. <clears throat> And you learn the anatomy of the animal so much more that way. So, you, you know, you can, you know, whether or not more ethically take a shot or not. You know, this is like when you're like 12, 11 years old. You know, being able to sit there and be like, okay, the heart sits between the lungs. I know this because I've seen it. The lungs is about this big on this animal. I know where I can go, you know. And that's, you know, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer style. But for me, it's now I can ethically take this animal more. Yeah, it was uh, um, one of the things that stood out to me today was when you, you we um, were dressing the ram and you said, so you shot this through the lung and when you shoot it through the lung, all of the blood will go to that lung mm -hmm. and you cut off one of the lungs that had blood on it yeah. and it was significantly heavier than the other lung. The other lung didn't have any blood in it and mm -hmm. it was uh, spongy and light. Spongy, spongy and kind of pillowy. Yeah. And th those little aspects of noticing the details of something, um, I'm that that's I get it now. Like I, yeah. I totally get why people are into hunting and why they get it. It's not about that bloodthirsty I need to go for the kill. It's about all these details that we overlook mm -hmm. when we sit down and we have a meal. And another another detail that's, that really stood out to me was when um, we took the animal and, and you said, well, okay, these are, um, you know, these are the ribs. And I'm like, oh, I've had ribs before, yeah. right? I get ribs with my French fries. <laughs> but I had never actually thought about the part of the animal as I was cutting it off. Mm -hmm. And there's some kind of um, synapses connection that happens there that people, uh, hunters always talk about it. They yeah. always, they, <laughs> you know, they claim it pretty hard. They say, hey, everyone should go out and actually try this because mm -hmm. there's a connection in that that you don't get when you tell your waitress, oh, I want the lamb chops. Yeah. And it's, and that's, you know, like for someone like you, that's just so new into it. And now, you know, it's been, you've been archery hunting for two, three days now, and you've got a ram and a boar on it. Two days, two days of hunting. You got a ram and a boar under your belt, you know. Um, but to see that and to see that appreciation, you know, like the other night we had your pork, you know, and it was, it was shot. And like 14 hours later, we were eating it. 
you know and and your housemate was like i i went down when we were done with it i we had we had the veggies we had the pork we had the rice and i took a photo of it and your housemate said oh you're one of those guys huh you take photos of your food and i looked at her and said hey when i kill it yeah i'm definitely one of those guys you know and but the cool thing is you know and when as you're eating it you know you you appreciate it that much more for i mean you know don't get me wrong i love going to a restaurant and eating a, a great ribeye or a great filet you know and i appreciate that but i appreciate coming home like this sheep curry tonight it's going to be the best sheep curry you ever had maybe not because the flavor is the best or this and that it's because it brings back so much you know and you know mark healy once told me he's all like you know that's our duty as a man is to provide for our family and so it's you're getting back to your neanderthal days or whatever where you're you're you know, you're providing not just for yourself, but for friends, family, your loved ones, people that you care about, you know. Well, there's a level of anxiety that, that we walk around with now, given the amount of inputs that we have in a day. Oh, Instagram. Oh, boom. Quick little hit of dopamine. Oh, uh, Internet, Facebook. Boom, 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 boom. But it creates this level of, of angst. Right, mm-hmm. that makes it very de- very difficult for us to drop into ourselves. Yeah. And I can say from today, today was awesome. <laughs> I felt so relaxed yeah. all day long after the hunt. There, there's just a level of um, of dropping into ourselves mm-hmm. that I, I mean, again, like I said, I'm hooked on it. Yeah, and um, and that's phew, it's so cool. You know, and I'm no different than anybody else that because I love looking at Instagram and I like looking through pictures and I like to see what other people are doing it but and I'm pretty addicted to it I guess you can kind of say it but in the woods the phone doesn't come out you know you're you're in there for a purpose and the purpose is to hunt what's it um like for you having hunted and fished for so long um and then going and ordering meat at a restaurant. <laughs> it's, I try and order things that I can't make at home. You know, I don't go to a restaurant and order butter, lemon, caper, mahi-mahi. Because I can make it at home. You know, um, but what I can't make at home sometimes, you know, is an aged ribeye. And I like me some ribeye and prime rib. But it's... But, you know, I know the steps. What, know. Is, what is an aged ribeye? It's just when they hang a, a cow after they shoot it. They, they hang it, let it age. Basically, the proteins start to break down and it gets a lot more tender. So if you, if you take, like, um, a, you shoot the most perfect cow ever. So, you know, you go and you shoot this fat year and a half old cow. And you're going to make steak with it. If you come home the day you shoot it, cut it up and cook it, it's going to be the worst steak you've ever had in your life. But if you let it age, let it drip all its blood out of it and let it basically the enzymes in it start to tenderize itself. After 10 or 12 days, it's going to be it's aged 10 or 12 days. It's going to be the best. When you go into a restaurant, you can play this ribeye has been aged for 27 days. Basically, they hung it in a cold place for 27 days. You know, and it's... So all of the blood has... Blood uh, has come down, you know, and then you got your enzymes breaking everything else down there. Right, you were telling me this morning when we put um, the ram meat in a cooler that it's good to have cold... Put the ram meat in the cold water because the blood vessels will still constrict and the blood will rush out of 
um, the meat. It's yeah, it's like anything else. You know, when you put something in cold water, it wants to constrict. Yeah, and when it constricts, the thing that's gonna what's gonna push out is whatever is not part of that thing that's constricting, and the liquid or the blood is gonna get pushed out. You know, and um, but yeah, that that's just what you cold water and ice just gives that gamey flavor out, takes that bloody out. Right, right, right. Is there um, any issue that you feel with the ethics of factory farming with the meat that you eat from factory farms? Um, you know, it's it's totally different. You know, you try and get the the non GMO stuff. You know, because you don't know exactly what they're eating. You know, but um, but then on the flip side, you know, you can have a boar that you know here in Hawaii. There's hardly it's very very hard to get non-GMO things because so much of the land for when we had sugar came back in the day had so many chemicals inside of it, you know. So you can't even get a piece of property deemed organic unless it's been someplace that is clean of all of the old sugarcane um, residues or whatever is left in the, the soil, you know. So um, what was I saying? Oh, because that non-GMO weird stuff. So like a pig that you shoot, you can't tell it that it's an organic thing because it, it went next door and it could have eaten some mac nuts. Yeah, you are what farm. you eat. Yeah. You know. Um, and animals take, taste much different depending on what they're eating. Exactly. I mean, like you were telling me about that blueberry bears. You know, the, the bears that eat blueberries and get all fat from blueberries before they hibernate. The hunters believe that that's the best tasting meat ever because I'm sure it is. It's got blueberry flavor all through it, so it's a little sweet, a blue in color. Um, but yeah, in in the natural world, that's more evident than anywhere. Is you are what you eat, you know. And there's different sides of the island, like ones that are eating mac nuts, opposed to eating guavas, opposed to eating avocados. They all have different fat content in them, and they all taste different. What? Um, I'm gonna get into Hawaii a little bit okay. because um, you were telling me the other day that a lot of times when you go hunting, you'll see ancient artifacts yeah well and that's the crazy thing is like um you know from the little you know, i've lived out here for a lot and you know you take your hawaiian um history and stuff like that in class and so you kind of know you know a, a little broad spectrum of what hawaiian history is and so when you're walking around you see an ads or you see a poi pounder or you see some sort of hawaiian tool what's an ads like just something that they smash stuff with basically or they they help cut you know like um like just a, a a shaped rock basically or and the poi pounder is a shaped rock that they used to make poi when they smashed taro um you know when i was younger we camped in honopui valley and it's this valley that's kind of remote that to get there you gotta fly a helicopter you gotta go by boat or by ocean and we is stayed, that on the big island it is on the big island and uh we camped in there and it was these terraces along the side of the cliffside that we made our tents in and uh in cleaning the area there was a lot of these lahala leaves and everything like that we kind of moved away so we could get to the dirt so we could set up our tents and stuff and as we're cleaning everything away we found all these old hawaiian tools and it's just it's so cool and you're like oh this is super dope but you, you touch it and you just get this feeling of mana it's like this this aura around it this energy around it and you're like what's mana uh like just like this energy this energy field that you feel basically like you know it's like when you walk into a, a scary place you know you feel that mana but it doesn't all have to be scary too it's like you can like a lot of people say they feel the mana of 
uh, Waipio Valley, which is the Valley of Kings over here. It's this big valley right next to my house. And when you get down there, you feel this mana. And it's just the mana of that. It's like your subconscious telling you they feel something. So respect this place, you know, respect it, take care of it, you know, don't thrash it. And, uh, you know, th- like, and that's where a lot of uh, tourists or quote unquote haulies, you know, they get, they don't listen to themselves. They don't listen to that subculture where or that subconscious where saying, hey, respect this area. Or maybe they just are oblivious to respecting anything doesn't other than themselves. Ha- doesn't haole, haole, doesn't it mean without breath? Oh, right? with the Hawaiian pronunciation. Haole. Haole, right? Isn't it? It's, it's one without breath. Yeah, basically right? it's just no breath. Yeah. Because the Hawaiians, when they greet each other, and same with the Polynesians, a lot of Polynesian cultures, when they greet each other, they put their nostrils up to each other. And one exhales while the other inhales. And so basically you do that back and forth and now you have a little bit of me and you and I have a little bit of you and you now we can talk. And when they tried to do it, Captain Cook, he didn't know what the hell they were doing. It was like, get away from me. You know, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, no breath. Ha'ole. Ha'ole. And then now it's, ha'ole. <laughs> you know, but, and that's where I think a lot of um, tourists out here, they've got to realize is that, you know, they're in someone else's home. And so respect it. You know, don't don't speed around don't do this don't do that you know respect it they're in someone else's house and that's where a lot of you know white people get grief and they get a lot of hate towards them is because they're not respecting someone else's house you know like here in hawaii everybody takes their shoes off before they come in the house if you see a pile of shoes at the door don't walk in the house with your shoes you know if uh you see trash cans don't leave your trash on the beach go throw it in the trash cans it's just common sense you know and i think that's where a lot of tourists come out here and have grief you know um get grief is because they don't use their common sense yeah yeah it's the the art of not shitting where you eat exactly and and the crazy thing is it's like that we were watching anthony Bourdain, you know the other day and he was on molokai and Molokai is notorious for not being the friendly island. And the guys, you know, because Anthony Bourdain went over there and he met up with some guys. And the guy he was talking to was like, oh, you know, I heard this place isn't friendly. And on the contrary, they're very friendly people as long as you don't try to, quote unquote, make them better. Make them better by, oh, you're doing this wrong. Or you need to, this place, I mean, for jobs, you guys need to have hotels. You guys need to have buildings higher than three stories. You need to have this, you need to have that. It's like, no come to molokai respect how it is don't try and change us don't try to make us better just be part of it and you're gonna be fine yeah you know and that goes with everywhere else as well you know i mean if you think you can help them suggest or whatnot but don't be like oh you're doing this wrong you know you this is wrong right yeah i mean i've done um stories all over the world um, on different environmental and social issues and I'd say that the one theme that is that river that runs through with every story is that the change needs to come from within the community Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to be the white missionary that comes in and says oh wow you natives you look you're you're hanging out naked wow what poor people you need we're here we're gonna give you clothes and then oh oops y'all got pneumonia (laughs) (laughs) exactly and that's that's how all the hawaiians died you know oh you got sick because you don't believe in god oh and you you're healthy if you don't want to get sick you need to believe in god so you sick person and you healthy person come sit underneath my roof and i'll tell you about what you guys need to be doing give me an abbreviated history lesson (laughs) 
Captain Cook shows up, says hello to everybody, finds Hawaii, leaves, comes back, killed. But not until the missionaries find out, oh, we got to go there. So the whalers and the missionaries came over here, set up camp. The missionaries are like, Christianity is the way. And almost overnight, thousands of Hawaiians, you know, because they they lived in this paradise where they didn't even have flies or mosquitoes. They didn't even have the common cold. So now you're bringing in these Western diseases, smallpox, the common cold, and putting all these, you know, Hawaiians with pristine or not pristine, but a lack of an immune system all underneath the same roof. One person coughs. It spreads like wildfire. Everybody starts dying. And then the missionaries and everything parts to take hold. They overthrow the queen, you know, overthrowing the queen. And now the queen, queen Liliokalani. So they overthrow the queen, which is our last queen. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden they make it against the law to speak Hawaiian. They make it against the law to practice any Hawaiian culture. Do you know when that was? Uh, no. 17, it was 17 something. There was, because they were talking about it in, yeah. in Bourdain last night. Was it 1791? I, something like or that. 1891. The real shocker is is how long that law lasted. Yeah. It was until the 70s, correct? Uh, that right. it was it was illegal to speak Native Hawaiian. Yeah, not that so much the 70s because it would be right before it became statehood. Okay, you know that they had allowed us, but yeah, like you said, they made it against the law to speak Hawaiian in schools, to teach Hawaiian history, to teach Hawaiian language, and this is cultured hula. You know, what people talk about hula, when they think about Hawaii, they think of hula dancers and palm trees. You know, America said, you know what? No. When you think of Hawaii, we just want you to think of palm trees. No hula. You know, basically, because they they exonate that. You know, and then they came through and they're like, okay, we really screwed up and we're sorry. Yes. Now it's mandatory for them to teach Hawaiian history and teach them Hawaiian language in schools nowadays, in public schools. You know, and so... They went from that to um, overthrow. And I mean, my dad has Hawaiian money, you know, like there was Hawaiian currency. My dad has Kalakaua dollars, which Kalakaua is the last king. King Kalakaua is the people's king. But he, they had dollars, Kalakaua quarter, Kalakaua pennies. So he's got penny, nickel, dime dollars, you know, and so we they had, had their own currency. They system. had their own currency system. And then that's when they overthrew um, the Hawaiian kingdom and it was all like peace out we're taking you over you know whether you like it or not we're taking you over and they imprisoned our queen she was in under, under house arrest who's they? Uh, the US government as far as I know and this was when um, Hawaii became uh, part of the United States the, one of the US territories one of the US territories yeah so it became a US territory for a number of years and then um, they became statehood in Oh my God, 51, 49? Something like that. Yeah. And, you know, but it's crazy to think that, you know, but that's, you know, they were trying to breed out the culture, you know, and now only within the last 20 or 30 years, it seems like Hawaiians have become more, um, more of an accepted language, you know, and the sad thing is, you know, you get these educated kids that want to pursue a college after high school, you know, and if they want to pursue college after high school and they want to go to a school outside of the state of Hawaii, if they take a, a foreign language because you need to have foreign language credits to graduate, it cannot be Hawaiian. You know, the schools on the mainland will not accept Hawaiian language as a foreign language taken. 
and uh, hopefully it changes so that you get these these bright young kids or in school that are strong of who they are and where they are and who they're or where they're from can take this Hawaiian language and take it to them. You know, like if you turn on the radio and you listen to Hawaiian music, you know, I can sing along with you. What they're singing about, I have no idea. But it would be really, and be because, you know, it was instilled from our parents. It's not like, you know, the American way. You're going to go to high school and after high school, you're going to go to college and after college, you're going to get a job, you're going to get married and have kids. You know, and so since, you know, college was not what you should do, it's what you're going to do. And um, because of that, you know, we weren't, we didn't take, my brothers and I didn't take Hawaiian language growing up, you know, and I think we missed out a lot. And now there's all these Hawaiian charter schools, which are awesome, you know, that are instilling um, Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian language back into the young people growing up. And it's, it's changed. It's changed completely. Now, you know, my cousin um, uh, from Molokai, you know, he's full olelo, which means he can speak completely Hawaiian. He's fluent in Hawaiian, conversational Hawaiian. You know, and he's the guy that we call upon to do prayers and stuff like that at family luau's and stuff. And then you got my cousin Kira, and she was, and you look at Kira, and she looks like a Haole girl. You know, she's white, red hair, Haole girl. But she's got so much Hawaiian um, love and Hawaiian culture instilled in her. She's, yeah, I think uh, her degree from the University of Hawaii is in Hawaiian studies. And she's fluent in Hawaiian. She was like, she was like second or third place in Miss Keiki Hula when she was younger. What's that? Keiki Hula is just a huge um, hula competition for kids that I think are like 14 and under or 18 and under. And, you know, it's crazy. And you look at her and you're like, you know, because you get so many people from the mainland that live here for two years and all of a sudden they're Kamaina or someone from the land. You know, I'm a Kamaina. I live here. I've lived here for the last seven months, three years a month, three years a year for the last seven years I've lived here, three months a year, you know, and the funniest thing is there's a South Park episode uh, yeah. when they come <laughs> yeah. to Hawaii, which is, I've got my Mahalo Rewards card. You know, right, I've seen that. They'll put the, puka shells yes. on. <laughs> and that is to a T what a lot of local um, we call them local Holly people, but a lot of Holly people from the mainland come out here and that's what they believe. You know, so they, you know, they get this stigma or this stereotism that follows them. And so when you see a white girl, you know, and she's trying to be Hawaiian from a distance, you're like, oh my God, another one of these. And then she opens up her mouth and you're like, oh shit. Yeah, you're like, well, damn, it. <laughs> damn it. You know more. <laughs> more aloha. Yeah. Do you know what aloha? Three meanings of aloha. She's like, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know what you're talking about. And well, th- there's something, um, I mean, being a Haole coming over here, there's something very impressive about the Hawaiian culture. There were um, some of the most advanced agriculture systems mm-hmm. early on out of anywhere in the world. It's the first place any um, anyone ever farmed fish. Yeah. Some of those fish ponds that we went and, see- and checked out where Hawaiians figured out a way to let small fish into a pond and they would have vertical sticks going down and uh-huh. then they would feed the fish and then they would get too big to go back out. Go back out. Yeah. Brilliant! I mean, they figured it out before anyone else. <laughs> the ocean's too rough to go catch dinner. How are we going to catch? Oh well, I got this pond filled with fish. Yeah, you know, and it, it allowed the Hawaiians to have time for enjoyment. That's where surfing came from. You know, surfing was made pure enjoyment. 
It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go work out, so I'm going to paddle my surfboard around. No, it was like, see that wave? I'm going to go catch it, and I'm going to laugh, and I'm going to smile, and it's because I prepared myself so that I can go play. Wow. You what know? were some of the earliest boards made out of? Uh, coal. I know a lot of woods were made out of coal, and that's like one of our matriarch trees is the koa tree. You know, we've made canoes out of them or va'as out of them. We've made surfboards out of them. Um, but now they make the alaya board, which is just a plain piece of wood shaped, no fins or anything like that, out of a little bit of everything. Uh, monkey pod, mango, but a lot of them were made out of koa. And they were heavy, you know. And um, But that's what it was for. It was made for enjoyment. And because, the like you said, because the Hawaiians are so advanced in cultivating um, and agriculture, they could. They could allow their time to go play. That's so cool. That's so cool. What are some um, laws and societal shifts that you would like to see moving forward for Hawaii? Um, you know, we've got this thing called Hawaiian Homes Land. And uh, it's, it's where someone, if they have 50% or more Hawaiian, um, they get put on this list. And this list will last and they're, they're given lands um, for I believe it's 99 years for a dollar a year or something like that um, I would love to see that list expanded to more than just you know um, people that are 50% Hawaiian because say you know you're not able to pass it down to your children because you know you can't tell your kids eh, you can only date other Hawaiians you gotta keep the blood strong and pure if you like my land, you gotta marry somebody. It's right, like but that's kids. that's but that's, that's, that's a fact. that's a real situation for a lot of people. It is. It's a real fact because you know, say because if you don't have um fifty percent or more Hawaiian, you're not able to get on the list. So say your mom is fifty percent Hawaiian, you know, and she's on the list and she gets land. Sweet, she gets the land, and you when she passes away, you inherit her land, so you can renew her lease at the end of her lease or whatever. But if you didn't marry someone that was Hawaiian, at the end of your life, say say you're four years old, say you've got kids that are four years old and you're 25% Hawaiian, you married some good-looking girl from Laos and <laughs> she has no Hawaiian in her whatsoever, you know, and so your kids are only an eighth Hawaiian. If you pass away, your kids can't have your house. It goes back to the list. And then so, and then in the, and because it's not their land, it's hard to get um, it's hard to get loans for a house. They can give you the Hawaiian Homes land. Yes, okay, you're on the list. You're next on the list. This twenty acres is yours. Sweet. I am twenty three years old. I'm a waiter at this restaurant down here, and I have these twenty acres of land. Yes. Okay, I'm gonna build a house on it. Okay, I'm gonna go get the to the bank I'm going to get a loan to build a house so you go get a try to get a loan and all the banks are saying no it's because if you can't make your payments if you get fired or you get injured and you can't make your payments what is the bank going to gain they can't take the house because you don't own the land right because it's Hawaiian homeland it's Hawaiian homes land you know so you know I'm sure there's you know I don't know enough about it but I would love to see people being able to in, with Hawaiian ancestry to be able to get their lands and keep it in their family right you know hawaii is such a melting pot also where there are people who are of portuguese um descent who have lived here for 
many many generations there are mm-hmm. people like yourself you come from filipino descent is i got right? filipino chinese hawaiian Hawaii. i mean i'm a can of spam yeah and most times if uh you don't really know what's in there but if you're a local person you're gonna like me right but the, yeah i'm that that's kind of my point right is that yeah. there is so many cultures that have come here and who have lived lived here for so long that was one thing that was really interesting <laughs> to me that i learned um was how pigeon was created yeah well it's you've like you said you got this melting pot of the world you know and the hawaiians are a dying breed they're an endangered species there isn't there's very few full hawaiian people and i've only met one <coughs> right well it's math every generation it's gonna get less and it's less more and less. more difficult um but because it's this melting pot you know um like we were just watching like who is hawaiian is the guy that's been here for five generations Hawaiian, even though he has no Hawaiian blood? Yes and no. You know, yes, because he lives by the culture of the Hawaiian people. You know, he's very family oriented or he's he works off the land or he he knows Hawaiian culture really well. But on a piece of paper, he can't write Hawaiian. And if he was to write Hawaiian and then the local guy that's got 10% Hawaiian that's living on the side is like, bro, that guy no Hawaiian. How are you claiming you're Hawaiian? You're not even, you know, Hawaiian. You know, how does that different? The signature at the bottom of the line, you know, um, like my best friend, Wayne, to be honest, you got the hunt with him. He's a mad, crazy man that, you know, but, you know, there's this stigma of what is a local boy. And, you know, growing up in Honoka is different than growing up in Kona or growing up in Honolulu or growing up on Kauai. But in Honoka, a local boy was somebody that dove, somebody that hunted pigs, that somebody that had a family who was close to them, and somebody that had a lifted Toyota Tacoma. <laughs> but, you know, Wayne is the epitome of what a local Honoka, Hamakua Coast boy is. You throw him in the ocean, he's going to bring you back dinner. He's going to get you lobster. He's going to get you taco. He's going to get you kole. You throw him in the mountain, he's going to bring you back pigs with his dogs. You know, you want to speak pigeon? He's fluent in pigeon, you know, so thick that it has, you know, a lot of people can't understand it. You know, so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but pigeon was created because of the plantation days when you had so many cultures coming together and they needed a language to all understand each other, right? Yeah. Well, because, yeah, you got all these people, you got all these different cultures working for one goal and the one goal was to harvest the sugar and so they all had to communicate each other you know so english is yes the the baseline to it but in i mean whole like for an instance oh bro well we go take the hibachi we go down the, the beach we go kind of kapila yeah bro, grab the taco bro go grab some uh, grab the siliasi make some adobo down there but we mean we're gonna be perps justin i don't speak spanish <laughs> Exactly, but in that one language, in that one sentence, or that one little conversational piece, it's like, you know, it's like, Kanikapila, oh, Hawaiian, we're going to go play music. Oh, bring the Siliasi, Filipino, for a big um, walk that we're going to make adobo out of. Oh, bring the Hibachi, the grill. Bring the taco, the octopus, so we can throw on the grill. You know, it's, it's this way to communicate, and, you know, for someone to come out here and be like, like I was telling you earlier, my roommates in college were like, what is he doing? Right, you're over in Seattle and you and Wayne would be having a conversation. Exactly. He'd tell you about a big pig that he just shot. Yeah. What language are you speaking? <laughs> oh, brother, boss was in the cause. Mean out of there. What was that? What is a boar? You guys have boar constrictors there? <laughs> <coughs> uh. But, you know, and it's, 
but what is a local boy and why is there pigeon it's you know you can't answer that because it changes from even sides of the island you know um like we talk about uh like how can you tell if somebody's a local and uh for one you can tell what they're wearing you know of course what kind of slippers they got on you know local people always have two types of slippers they got your everyday slippers which is your local rubber slippers and you got your fancy slippers maybe your rainbows or a pair of scots <laughs> that oh that's for go wear out <laughs> you save those for go to the hotel for dinner yeah hey honey girl we go hotel you know why what slippers you gonna wear i'm gonna wear my leather ones Ooh, baby we're gonna dress up i'm really night. happy that you're going into this because when shane dorian was on rogan and he asked him to speak pitch he's like there's no way i'm doing this right now well and that's the crazy thing is because you look at shane you know and everybody knows who shane or you know there's a large amount of the world's population that knows shane and knows he's from hawaii and he's from hawaii and he's a proud person from hawaii but if you were asking him if he was Hawaiian, he'd be like, no. Even though he's, you know, a generation here Hawaiian. He's grew up. That's all he knows. No. He's heard. He went to one of the most local schools out here, Konawaina. Pigeon is taught in. I mean, the teachers talk to you in Pigeon. You know, and for him to be like, no, I'm not doing that. Is because he knows what it's like when he hears, you know, because he's white. He's a white guy. When white people try and speak Pigeon they sound a little weird or they sound this or they sound that and he didn't want to put himself underneath that umbrella you know but uh yeah pigeon is it's funny it's and i'm sure it sounds super weird over the right well but 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 as you said um most of the people who developed pigeon were dark-skinned people so there is that one degree removal for white people speaking pigeon even if they've lived here for one or two generations well, I think it's the dark people that speak pigeon because it's the workers, it's the blue collar guys that were in the fields working. Um, you know, the Japanese out here, like even though they work the fields, a lot of them were very business minded. So a lot of them own different businesses around the island. Um, the Portuguese, the white guys, they were the bosses, you know, so that's why they're on their high horse. You know, so the local, the um, Hawaiians, you know, they, they work the fields. Same with the Chinese and the Filipinos. Damn, crazy. We're going to do so many podcasts together. I can tell we could go for six hours, but... Um, what are we at, like five hours already? Yeah, we're at five hours already. We're on uh, <laughs> Jameson and Ginger number three. <laughs> we we the first I'm going to quit while we're ahead right now. But uh, any parting words? Where can people find you? Uh, search me on Instagram, man. At uh, Big Isle Boy 24, because I'm Big Island. I love that this island. Um, hashtag Jaylee Stories. But you can find me on the big island in a small town called Honoka'a. Love it, man. Thanks for your stories. And uh, thanks for taking me hunting. Oh, hey, congratulations, ball and ram killer. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much for listening, my friends. Be sure to get in touch with Justin on Instagram. And if you like this show, take two minutes, give it a rating on iTunes. Help me out. All right. Get out in the water, go play, and I will see you guys soon.